Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Scripture reading today is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul in what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come into a place of worship, to sing our songs of praise, to give thanksgiving and prayers of intercession. And now, Lord, we come to the reading and the exposition of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts. Lift up your heads, O gates. And Lord, we ask that the King of glory would come in. Amen. Again, for those of you who don't don't know me, I think we've had a lot of changes over the last year. One of the problems is only preaching once a year when David goes away is um, you only get half an hour to say a year's worth of what you've wanted to say. <laughs> so you better check your, you better, you better check your watches, because um, I have known to be verbose. Batch just said that we celebrated. How many of you celebrated July 4th? Yes, if you hadn't noticed, I have a strange accent. Not the uh, best time of year for me. <laughs> uh, no one wants to be known as uh, the red coat oppressor. <laughs> Having been in the United States now for 29 years, I've p- picked up some uh, familiar language that Americans like to use. How about this one? Loser, <laughs> right? For the Englishman. Made worse this week uh, by the women's USA team, (laughs) beating the English, and uh, (laughs) celebrating after the goal that put us to the sword with uh, a mimed cup of tea, reminding us of the tea party. (laughs) So, forgive me if I'm in my juices just a little bit. As they like to say, he's in his feelings in the, in, the, in the prison. 
What else are we in the season of? Not only celebrating the independence of the United States, uh, but we are in the silly season, aren't we? Political season. Democrats, a couple of weeks ago, had two nights of sharing their views of what they want to do with the country. And don't know where you are politically. All I can say is, oh dear. I ride to prison every day, usually on a motorcycle. I'm glad my wife can't see me. When it's raining, I take my truck, and I'm able to listen to sermons. And I heard these words from one of my favorite pastors, favorite pastor, I think, of most PCA folks. He said this, no one is fit to lead. No one is fit to lead. Democracy is medicine, but it is not food. Tim Keller said that in the midst. It was like a throwaway line in the midst of a sermon. But I picked up on it. I go, wow, listen to that. No one is fit to lead. And democracy is medicine, but it is not food. Democracy may be the best political system to help us live together as fallen creatures. But don't you long for more. Don't you long for the time when we don't have, in 2016, one leader and another leader, and we always have to pick the lesser of the two evils. Isn't there anybody that we can go to that is actually fit for office? Don't you all long for something more? And I think that is what is celebrated here in this psalm. This psalm helps us to remember that there is something more, that there is someone more, and that the food that we're actually looking for, not the medicine, is a king, a righteous king that will have a pure heart, as the psalmist says, who has not lifted up his soul to what is false or sworn deceitfully, someone that we can have a radical trust in and completely depend our lives upon. In 1983, a great man from the former Soviet Union, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Has anybody heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Okay, you have to be careful who you choose to use as examples. Alexander Solzhenitsyn had been invited to come and speak. It was called the Templeton Prize. He had been called over to speak. And he said this. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. 
He goes on and says, what is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now at the end of the century against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. He says it three times in his opening of his speech. The failings of human consciousness deprived of its divine dimension have been a determining factor in all the major crimes of this century. It is my contention as we look at Psalm 24 that we are to be reminded first of all of the claim of Yahweh and then the gift of Yahweh and the welcome of Yahweh. As you'd notice, I'm using the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, translated Lord in our English versions. Back in my mom and dad's church in dear old England, South Manchester, Cheadle, you can go down this high street in Cheadle, and usually on any regular Saturday, you can see people doing this as they're looking at my mom and dad's church, St. Mary's. What they're doing is trying to decipher what the letters are on the clock face, two clock faces on the tower of the church. And before the old rector, I knew him when I was a boy. Before he left, I believe he was influenced by Malcolm Muggeridge, Solzhenitsyn, and other great thinkers of the time. He had before he left the church, after serving that church for over 30 years, he had replaced all the Roman numerals with letters. It was his parting shot, having lived through probably the First World War and the Second World War himself. His parting shot was this, time is flying, God forgotten. And if you add up all the letters, it's 12 and 12 on each clock face facing the main street of Cheadle. Time is flying. God forgotten. In our psalm, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The context of this psalm is the great celebration of King David. He had arisen, gone through a time of persecution with Saul. The kingdom had been given to him. He was first of all ordained a king over the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Then eventually, seven years later, he became the united king over the northern ten tribes. And this was, this was the zenith, this was the accumulation, the culminating point of his time as king. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines. And at first he had wanted to bring it up to Jerusalem, the city that he had just captured and made his own city. And in a great era of judgment, they had put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart pulled by oxen. And as it was going along, one of the oxen stumbled 
the Ark of the Covenant, which signified God's presence, was about to tumble off, and one of the priests touched it to keep it on the cart, and he dropped dead. God was not pleased. And you can imagine over the months in which David is thinking about this, he is wanting the blessing of the Lord. He is wanting the presence of the Lord to be right with him because he is God's anointed. He is the king. And he keeps thinking all the time, how am I going to have that presence with me? And as the ark is still a long way off from Jerusalem, the home in which the ark now resides is being blessed abundantly. You can go read all this in 2 Samuel. First few chapters of 2 Samuel. You can read all the background history. And David's probably getting a little bit jealous. Man's getting all the blessing. How about me? I'm the king. And eventually, they bring the ark up. And Paul, I mean, David has written this psalm in celebration of what is about to take place. The whole people, they begin to shout out this great claim of the Lord, Yahweh. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The first part of theology is very, very simple. The first part of celebration, the first part of remembering who we are as creatures is that we belong to the Lord. Yeah, amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the first part of any theology. Who is God? And who are we in relationship to God? And David is thinking through that. This God that you can't even get close to, and even if you try and give him a little bit of support, he'll kill you stone dead. And you can imagine what he's thinking. He's thinking through this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It begins to generate a question within him. Who can get close to him? Who can approach him? Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come close to this holy creator God? And so he asks that question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And the choir probably answered back, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift his soul to what is false. They give him a response. But here is the mighty claim of all the Bible. You can hear even the first commandment here, can't you? You shall have no other gods before me. It's right here in this psalm. I am the creator king of the universe of the earth, and of all peoples in the earth. And what we have done this morning in coming and assembling ourselves together, this is actually what we are remembering, is it not? Our primary relationship with God above all else. It's our first relationship. There's a great illustration of this. In C.S. Lewis's, you can't be a PCA pastor without quoting C.S. Lewis, can you? Hmm? I know, I I hear David every week quoting C.S. Lewis. But I read this book about 15 years ago. It's called The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is probably, for me, one of 
C.S. Lewis's greatest works of imagination, but in it, he exposes all manner of idolatry. The book is about a busload of people who are in hell, who don't really know they're in hell. They're so lighter than air and full of vanity. They've all trusted in all the wrong things in their life. And they go on a bus trip, on a day trip to heaven. And they are met on the outskirts of heaven by people that they have known in earth. And one of those people is a woman. One of the most painful meetings we witnessed was between a woman's ghost and a bright spirit who had apparently been her brother. They must have met only a moment before we ran across them, for the ghost was just saying in a tone of unconcealed disappointment, Oh, Reginald, it's you, is it? Now, if I start doing Monty Python, please excuse me, because when, when I start doing dialogue, I... I it just comes, it comes to mind. <laughs> yes, dear, said the spirit. I know you expected someone else. Can you, I hope you can be a little glad to see even me for the present. I did think Michael would have come, said the ghost. And then almost fiercely, he is here, of course. He's there far up in the mountains. Why hasn't he come to meet me? Didn't he know? My dear, don't worry. It will all come right presently. It wouldn't have done, not yet. He wouldn't be able to see or hear you as you are at present. You'd be totally invisible to Michael, but we'll soon build you up. I should have thought, if you can see me, my own son could. It doesn't always happen like that, you see. I have specialized in this sort of work. Oh, it's work, is it? snapped the ghost. Then, after a pause, well, when am I going to be allowed to see him? There's no question of being allowed, Pam. As soon as it's possible for him to see you, of course he will. You need to be thickened up a bit. How? said the ghost. The monosyllable was hard and a little threatening. I'm afraid the first step is a hard one, said the spirit. But after that, you'll go on like a house on fire. You'll become solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, not as the beginning. That will come later. It's only the little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. Oh, you mean religion and all that sort of thing. This is hardly the moment. And from you, of all people... Well, never mind. I'll do whatever's necessary. What do you want me to do? Come on. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. I'm quite ready. But, Pam, do you think? Don't you see you are not beginning at all as long as you are in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. You wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. You mean, if I were only a mother. But there is no such thing as being only a mother. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. And that relation is older and closer. Some of those deep theology that you will ever hear in your entire life said right there, mimicking the scripture. 
Before you are a mother, before you are a father, before you are a businessman, before you are in a relationship with the state of Florida, with the United States, with England, before anything else in your life, you are a creature first. And you hold your first allegiance to God and to God alone. He is your creator. And without anything else, you would have nothing in your life. Before you are a brother, before you are a sister, you are a creature. Do you see yourself like that? Or are all your loves disordered? I can hear David again as I'm preaching. David says very often, St. Augustine said that, what is wrong with human beings? What is sin? Sin is all of our disordered loves. We put loves for everything else in this created world above our love for God. And yet we were created for God first. Then, when we get that relationship right, then all the pressure on all our other relationships won't be so bad for us. Are you a creature? Have you remembered that as you came to church this morning? I'm a creature first. And then the question comes, well, if I am a creature, how will I approach God? How will I come before him? And that's when we come not only from the the claim of Yahweh, the claim of Yahweh's loyalty and primary allegiance to your heart, but to the gift of Yahweh. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? How are we to approach him? David has thought through this. The people have thought through this. And even though David is a man of unclean lips, he is a man that is aware of his own frailties. In Psalm 25, he says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Again, if you go back into David's history, you will see that he is a man of mixture. He has his good points and his bad points. But even so, he is still the Lord's anointed. He is still God's chosen king. And he says, I need clean hands and a pure heart. What I do has to match who I am on the inside. Who's not lifted up his soul to something that is false. That he has not relied and trusted in an idol and who has not sworn deceitfully, not a person of lies. Jesus takes this up and says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have integrity. Those are the things that we're looking at this morning. Who can come before the Lord? It's those who are pure, those who are loyal, those who have integrity. And Paul, not Paul, David knows that he doesn't have it in and of himself. Again, the answer to Psalm 24 is in 25. Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth. He's not claiming to be able to come into the Lord's presence on his own. But what does the choir begin to say? He will receive blessing from the Lord 
and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David himself is trusting that there is a salvation, that there is a covering, that there is a forgiveness, that there is an unfailing love, that is the righteousness of God that comes to him as a gift. If you look at Psalm 32, this is quoted in Romans. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The claim of the Lord is that I am your sovereign maker, your sovereign God. The gift of the Lord is righteousness that comes from God himself to cover all of your sin. In 2 Samuel, the picture here is of a psalm that is triumphant. Last week, David said that Psalm 22 was a psalm of lamentation and that 40% of the psalms are psalms of lamentation. But this psalm is a psalm of reverent joy before the Lord. You would have been able to see on this day as this psalm was recited by the choir and the musicians. You would have seen women dancing with, with um, tambourines, men on horns and on the shofar horns. And you would have seen David himself dancing up and down with complete abandon and joy as he was celebrating and receiving the gift of God's presence and God's righteousness in his life. And he just exuded with joy. If 40% of the Christian life is to be lamentation and to join and see with others the suffering of the world, 60% of the Christian life, there should be an accent on joy and celebration. But though all the world belongs to God and all peoples belong to God, not everybody rejoices. Do they? Are you still with me? Not everybody rejoices. Because spying from a hole in the house that she was in was Michael, Saul's daughter. And she looked out upon David as he was rejoicing and dancing. And in the text says, and she despised him in her heart. She was probably to the manor born. And she was looking at David, probably looking like a fool. And she says to him when he gets home and she comes out to chastise him, look at you showing all of your private parts to the whole of Israel and to the women in Israel. What a fool you are. That's not kingly. And David rebukes her. I'm not sure that David was right in that point. The text says that she remained childless for the rest of her life. Maybe he didn't go in and sleep with her. Maybe a curse came upon her life and she couldn't have children. Who knows? But again, the scripture separates. Even though everyone belongs to the Lord, only those receive salvation. Only those who can approach the Lord, who have faith in the righteousness that comes from God. And they rejoice in it. And they celebrate it. And yet there are those who look at that righteousness that comes from God and they despise it in their heart because they have probably trusted in something else. 
in some vanity, in some idol. Maybe it's your lineage. I'm Saul's daughter. I'm a daughter of the king. But are you a daughter? Are you a son? Are you a child of the true king through faith in that king's righteous gift to you? There's a huge difference. And I think that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. It's the divorce between heaven and hell. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And lastly, we come to the welcome of Yahweh, the claim of Yahweh, the gift of Yahweh, and the welcome of Yahweh. The whole procession in their rejoicing, they get to the gates of Jerusalem. And here David shouts out with a loud voice, Lift up your heads, O gates. And the choir comes in behind him, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And as the whole New Testament celebrates and elaborates the answer to this question, who is this King of glory? You can imagine someone who's there at the gate, a sentinel at the gate, and he chimes in, Who is this king of glory? Who's asking to be able to be led into the great city of Jerusalem, the place of God's holy presence, where the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, will be placed? Who's asking to come in here? The Lord, strong and mighty. And I believe this is where the Holy Spirit catches up David. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. To David, this would have meant that I am the Lord's anointed, I am the king, and I have been fighting with the Lord's help all against all the enemies of Israel. And the king who has anointed me and all of his house, we are the ones who are asking for entry into God's presence. But David is the great, 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 great grandfather of his great son, Jesus. Couldn't you see Jesus doing this? Palm Sunday, don't we celebrate that? Where Jesus himself rides on a donkey... And in Matthew 21, as he's coming into Jerusalem, everyone is praising him. Hosanna to the highest. Hosanna to the king of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here comes the true king, King Jesus. And he is riding into Jerusalem. And what is he going to do? This is almost, it's kind of funny. It's like, here's one king coming in, but he knows that he needs forgiveness of sins. But here's another king that comes in, the greatest son, the son that God had promised David would be the king forever on his throne. And he comes to Jerusalem, and all of Jerusalem goes crazy. The text says that in Matthew. Go read it. And all Jerusalem was in an uproar because of Jesus. He comes in. And what does he come in to do? He comes in to die. He comes in to make a welcome for us. 
all the hosts that will come and follow their true king. Jesus comes. He does battle with all the authorities, with the political Romans, with the Jewish authorities. He does battle with Satan, and he goes out to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he is the one who ascends the hill of the Lord. He is the one with outstretched hands. He is the one who is only worthy. He is the one who is pure of heart, who has never lifted up his heart to an idol, never spoken deceitfully, and he is the one who gives his life for his people and does battle the Lord strong and mighty. Dies the king himself, dies himself for the king. If you get all of that. And I think there's another lift up. Lift up your heads, O gates. Because the cross didn't keep him, did it? The third day he rose again. And can you imagine a picture in heaven of Jesus as he ascends back into heaven? And he comes back into heaven, bringing captivity, captured all those saints of Israel that have believed in him. And he comes back to heaven, and he's coming before his heavenly father, the true king. And he comes himself as a king, and he says to the gates of heaven, Lift up you heads, O ye gates. And maybe one of the angels there, a sentinel says, Who are you? Who wants to come in here? And the whole choir responds, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And they all enter in. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus entered into the heavenly Jerusalem, went straight to his father, having accomplished his work. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. And he says, having satisfied the father's wrath, he now sits on the right hand of the father and he rules. Absolutely. Lift up ye heads, O ye gates. That is spoken to you and to me. Will you let the King of glory come in? Have you forgotten God? Have you forgotten who you are and your purpose? was to live in joy forevermore, having your heart ravished on the love of God. There is a welcome. There is a claim. There is a gift. And there is a welcome from God himself to all those who will lift up their heads, open up their hearts, and the king of glory will come in. Have you done that? Have you ever invited the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and lay claim to His territory? Your heart belongs to Him. It's His ground, but have you made it holy ground by the Lord's presence? I trust that you will do that this morning if you don't know Him. And if you are a Christian, and it's easy to be a Christian, isn't it? And forget God. We get so busy. Then open up your heart. Again. 
Not once, but twice, three times, four times. And the Lord will renew you and renew your passion for him and for going about his business. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.